You're listening to a Mind Reading podcast. Mind Reading is a linked project of Health Ethics and Narrative Ireland, a collaborative interdisciplinary network bringing together a wide range of researchers to build a vibrant community of practice and research around ethical and creative narratives in clinical education and practice. Mind Reading's conferences and events have involved collaboration between UCD School of Medicine, UCD School of English Drama and Film, and University of Birmingham Department of English Literature, with the Royal College of Physicians in Ireland and the DLR Lexicon. In this episode, Keeping Abreast, Breastfeeding in Ireland. This interdisciplinary event for clinicians and humanities scholars focused on the cultures and challenges of breastfeeding in Ireland. The event took place on the 21st of November 2022 in Mali, the Museum of Literature Ireland. This episode features Panel 1, Nourishing the Breastfeeding Dyad, Parent and Child. The speakers were Dr. Aoife Tuig, Ariana Eumanns Keenahan, Neve Cassidy, and firstly, Dr. Emer Ryan. So, hi, um, thanks for having me today. Um, this is kind of this is very different for me. Breastfeeding is very emotive, and it's a really provocative conversation. And the other thing that's probably more provocative is the conversation about tongue tie. <laughs> So I think it's, it's very personal, it is, it's a bodily function, so it's not something we can prescribe. In my professional capacity as a pediatrician, it's very different in, in terms of usually when I think as a, as a lactation consultant, people self-select or support, support because they self-select because they want to breastfeed. And it's very hard for me to judge sometimes and, and to not impose my own personal view of breastfeeding on a mother who's in front of me who's stumbled upon me because he's accidentally come in on my take. Um, and she's breastfeeding or half-breastfeeding and, and, and where her wants lie. Um, and I think it's very fitting that this is kind of hosted by the arts and humanities because the words that you use are, you know, to be very careful with. Um, and one of, the, one of the words that I was most taken aback by when I was, I was working with was a girl from Eastern Europe and she was presenting a case in this, and this baby is artificial feeding. And I went, whoa, like that's a, that's a big word. I think if we were to say, you know, are you breastfeeding or are you artificially feeding? It's very different to say, are you breastfeeding or are you bottle feeding? So um, the way that we kind of use those words in this conversation, they, 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 I suppose they, they, can, um, they can be proactive. So I think I'm, what I'm trying to um, explain here in this photo is how I ended up here, this, this dyad of paediatrician and lactation consultant. And it was because of this guy. And... This is not a cute photograph. Okay. This is not this. This is my firstborn. This is the before and after. This is the four weeks after photograph on the right of the child who got rapidly massive within four weeks. <laughs> Five hundred grams a week. Something I've never seen before since. I'm like, I didn't know what was wrong with this child. Two and a half years of being in a maternity hospital and dealing with these babies, and I was like. You know, babies that would come in that would have reflux, babies would have feeding problems, babies would have been green, gassy poos, babies up all night, babies screaming. And this is one of them, and he was like, I was changing it about five times a night, because it was just a poo boy. And I thought I'd suddenly get hit by a bus at four weeks, and I went, he's massive. So I had a massive oversupply of milk. And this, actually, this is a, a picture I found from on the internet of, of Sandifers, it's a confessional wedding. They look like they're having a seizure and they're just refluxing. And I'd heard about it, but never seen it until he did it. And I went, oh, God. So um, I enlisted, so a lactation, a lovely lactation consultant, but also I went to the dairy industry 
So I, I was having a conversation with my uncle, who's a dairy farmer. I said, oh, I've got way too much milk. And he went, I said, just have a couple of cows. And he said, yeah, yeah, it does. And they have to watch out for it because the calves can get skirts and their bowels can twist. That doesn't happen with babies. And they look on the grass for these frothy green poos. So it does, and what they do is they throw in an extra calf so they get to, to foster another, ba- another baby to take away some of the milk. Um, so I, I learned more then. Anyway, there, was, there, are, there are other um, remedies for it. It wasn't the only thing kind of that I learned from the dairy industry. Um, I think how this is the, the diet, you would never see a cattle farmer separate an infant calf from its mother in that early feeding time. You, it's just, um, I think we have to look at it, the diet as an individual level and what we're doing at a societal level. And then for me, from my point of view, in my role within the hospital system, that is sometimes the damage that we do. And in terms of words, this is um, another word that I learned too late. I think if I'd known about it at the beginning, it would make, would have made sense. And I think we have to stop misrepresenting the truth about having a baby. It's not this picture on the right, like there's physical changes, emotional changes, hormonal changes, social transitions, you know, an identity shift of who you are. Um, so there's this volumes in the literature on adolescence, but there's very little about matriescence. Um, so I like to call breastfeeding, particularly the, the period in hospital when they cost your feet, I call that the second labour. And I think we should probably, you know, stop telling people it's over when the baby's born. And I call the third, first three months of the baby's life like the fourth trimester. And, and then implies there's work involved there. And most recently, I've had a sister who will have a, have a baby and she's Asian. And she has introduced the confinement period to our family. So my father-in-law, I stopped him going to the Rotunda at 18. That was which had happened to me. And I thought, I don't think that's culturally appropriate. So she has managed to protect herself for the first 30 days. And she has hot food and it's been kept warm and that's the priority and I think we have a lot to learn from that and I think maybe we are, we've had an idea that we need to be, and I'm not supposed to be talking about culture, I've just looked over the diet, but <laughs> I digress, but I think we've taken our, our um, inspiration from the American side where they have two months of maternity leave, uh, or two weeks of maternity leave and, and this idea of pumping as the, the norm, like the biological norm is, is to be with your baby and not to be separated. And it's funny you talk about the launch of this policy, but in paediatrics, it's entirely normal to bring your baby along while you're on maternity leave and you have to go to study day. In fact, you know, it's a kind of a social catch up, but it's part of that um, getting back to work. And you were, you were part of this new policy launch with Orla down there as well, and the uh, medical parents as uh, trainees, as medical, medical trainees as parents, and, and the breastfeeding policy on that stuff. So also been, been launching. I think so as a society, our maternity leave entitlements make a difference, Breast, breastfeeding breaks, working from home, and then antenatal information. I think we have to have school-based education on breastfeeding, because if it's not, if you don't know about it before you're pregnant, you're not going to breastfeed. Um, and then in the States, I find this is a little bit strange, again, is that they are food, food packages, and they they support half of US children are, are given a food package. And the amount of food package they got only since kind of think, I think uh, in latter years has, has, an, has been different if you're breastfeeding. So, so they're actually responsible for buying, the American government responsible for buying half of the, uh, the infant formula sold in the States. 
So since in the last year they've, they've given more food for more milk, fish and cheese to breastfeeding mothers and more food to the children. And that's a policy change and I wonder, I wonder whether it would work here if we were to, to incentivise breastfeeding by um, food, like a food, because you do consume more food as a breastfeeding mother. And then I want to talk about um, my role and our role as, as uh, clinicians in the diet. I think infrastructurally we were a bit stuck. Um, I had a mother who was transferred to just 10th Street, but in the regional hospital had three weeks his partner was wasn't being offered a mattress on the floor because they were all gone. So there isn't a place for them for mothers to sleep beside their infant when they're hospitalised. And in the new hospital there will be an in part of Town Street there is, but not in all of it. And that's really important. Um, and it's important when I come around to see a small baby that if they're being breastfed, that that's part of the conversation and how we're going to uh, continue it. So one of the things right now we have is all these babies in with RSV and moculitis. And there was a, a, an interesting study done in France. They looked at mum's breastfeeding and how, how being going to bronchiolitis affected your breastfeeding journey. And there was modification in 50% of babies before they kind of had a policy on making sure that these babies were going home breastfed. And after it, 80% of them had kept breastfeeding as before. Now the ones that had stopped, they were usually children who are much sicker, so ventilated, and their children need a lot more, the mom needs to pump a lot more, because they're not going to directly feed. So from my point of view, if I have a bronchiolitis baby is breastfed, I'll try and get them to pump and then breastfeed, so that they don't have a, the fast flow, and that's part of the conversation of weaning them from their NG feeds to get them back to normalise to normalize them. That's where my role is. And there's um, an order brought my attention to this, um, uh, Lindsay Hookways, Breastfeeding the Vet Brave, she has done a PhD on, on how medical, medically complex children and their families are kind of managed in hospital. And her journey was in breastfeeding uh, a baby or child to an infant with leukaemia. And most recently, and I'm only back from maternity leave from that since August, I had one of these children who was ter- you know, a terminal baby, a baby with a terminal illness. And I suppose we have chased the kilograms and the, the mills and the you know, try and make this baby grow, but this is a baby never going to grow. And this was a baby who was never going to live a long time. It didn't really matter if they were nutritionally de- depleted in the longer term. I'm not talking about their bone health age 80. But it was important for that mum to breastfeed, and it was an important part of her palliative care to try to, uh, to kind of focus on that and to not let that part be lost along the way. And that's a picture of the new palliative care um, room in Down Street where families can can, can go to when their baby, their child is dying. It's an important thing. And this is one of my pet peeves. That's another thing where we interfere and do no harm. And I suppose you always need evidence to say something's wrong. Um, what you're doing is wrong is doing, and is doing harm. This is a study in Japan where, um, where people were given, the infants were given top-ups of cow's milk or hydrolyzed formula, which is less of, a, uh, um, less of a allergy-provoking. I think sometimes in terms of breastfeeding, we quote WHO, which is more of a global thing, but we need to look at ourselves as a first world country where our biggest problem is going to be allergy for an infant, life changing, and it's a long term problem. And children who are, who are given milk in that first year of life are more likely to have a cow milk protein allergy. And so we need to stop giving children or infants um, cow's milk in that first um, week. 
I didn't mean entirely stuff because I know we've already done jobs to be fair in the room, but also like because it is very dangerous to drop your sugars, and I think we haven't lose sight of how dangerous it is to not have um, an adequate sugar supply to your brain. But but doing this is doing harm. And so the Allergy Task Force has said that it's important that they, they suggest they're, they're the only policy they have around breastfeeding is that it shouldn't be given in the first week of life. And they don't have a policy on after that. Actually, they don't, you can, they don't have a policy on breastfeeding after all because it's not their area. But this is their area. Um, and introducing allergens while breastfeeding in those, even in those early years of four to six months is important for our first grown babies. I probably got bored at this point, um, but I'm going to talk briefly about sleep. And this is important because your employees are coming back to you after six months of your statutory maternity leave tired. Um, they're more likely to get sick, it's harder to learn. They're more emo- emotional, um, and they are, they're in a bad mood. <laughs> and sleep disturbance predicts you know, the, the mood and the stress and fatigue of the mother. Um, it also has consequences for older children. So we're toddlers up plus that don't sleep. This is about uh, parents. And, and breastfeeding is often kind of um, gets a lot of slack for this sleep. And a lot of people feel that if you don't breastfeed, then maybe your child would sleep. Mm-hmm. And this is um, a cohort study looking up for the. So A and B is, is a six month old baby, and C and D is a, a 12 month old baby. So this first kind of column here is, is the, the babies who sleep through the night for six hours. And babies at six months don't sleep through the night, so half of them do sleep for six hours um, at all, and they're bottle or breastfed. And bo- breastfed babies are more likely not to sleep through the night, but most babies don't sleep through the night. And at 12 months of age, most you know, babies are, not, are still not sleeping through, through the night. 20% of those babies, are, or when I say through the night, that's six hours. Six hours is enough. Um, so, twenty percent of babies, all babies at twelve months, aren't sleeping through the night, and fifty um, percent of babies who are breastfed aren't sleeping through the night. So, you have to be cognizant that um, sleep um, is important and needs to be um, protected. I think everyone in the room understands that there's health benefits that are longer-reaching, both for babies and both for mothers, um, but particularly for mothers and reducing. Um, uh, reducing diabetes in a mother by breastfeeding is, is, is huge. Um, and for me, I find I don't see the breastfed babies coming in as sick with bronchiolitis or gastroenteritis, and I don't see them coming in with flat heads. But again, um, it's, 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 it's very, breastfeeding is very personal, and it's, there's no point in telling a bottle fed baby that their child is sicker because of There's no good to come out of that. Um, and it's, it's, it's individual, so some are fine and some aren't. I think our priorities are protecting that postpartum period and not letting people um, intrude on, on, on a mother and her baby. They shouldn't be separated and they shouldn't have visitors unless the visitors are happy to see them breastfeeding. And, and that's where I think we fall down in our society and need to stop, stop showing up in people's houses. I mean, we need to protect that diet through their hospital journey and we need to protect breastfeeding babies even when, especially when they're sick and even when they're dying, we need to accept that we're not going to sleep well as employees. Um, um, modelling breastfeeding in the community is enough. Um, children model behaviour. So this is my older girl picture. So she, this is her norm. So at this stage, I'm going to also be half the kids on the road to norm because I believe that by me breastfeeding when they're here playing Lego in my kitchen, 
that becomes a norm, and that's this kind of my subtle marketing policy. Um, but a predictor, uh, you know, of a, a breastfeeding journey is the grandmother's attitude. So, um, even if I know we're not there yet in Ireland, if a mother has tried to breastfeed and failed, it's still insurance for the next generation because it's not that abnormal to her or not familiar. Um, so there's that foundation for the next generation. So thank you for letting me speak. Um, thanks to Lorraine for letting me um, become a lactation <laughs> When I went and asked her, would, would it be something that, that a doctor could do? Because I was in the first, the first wave along with Afif and Andula to, to consider it, it being important for us because it wasn't part of our curriculum. Um, thank you. The second speaker was Dr. Ether Tuig. It's lovely to be here as well, um, and I hope people don't mind I'm going to refer to some notes as I go along, because um, I suppose I was really trying to thread um, the com- the, this contribution to the, today together over the last um, few weeks or months since I think Liz had asked me to, um, to do it. And, and sometimes I did struggle, I have to say, to weave the disparate thoughts about what I wanted to say. Um, and I wondered as well if it's something, something very personal to me and located um, probably deep inside myself um, in talking about breastfeeding. I had two very different experiences of breastfeeding. My son's uh, one ended not like it was a, a good long time, but ended a bit too abruptly um, and, and unplanned. Um, and my second son, I did breastfeed for a very long time actually. <laughs> and um, so we had um, very different, right through actually the first years of my PhD actually. And my mother would bring him in to um, one of the hotels near Hall Street, and I'd go down and breastfeed him and go back to the neonatal unit. Um, so um, I have lots of um, fond memories and, um, and sometimes difficult memories as well, having to leave my own baby uh, to go into some sick babies in the hospital at the same time. So I suppose maybe that's part of my own struggle, weaving this talk together. Um, but the title is Breastfeeding as Metaphor and Breastfeeding as Communication. And it will probably link in quite well with Emer's talk actually as well. So. I was drawn when I was thinking of coming to the talk to um, the work of Irish poet Deirne Negrifa and it, her recent work I suppose and, and some of her previous work is centred in the poet's experience and, uh, and reflections on motherhood and her particular and unique way of expressing and articulating the psychobiological process of breastfeeding. Thus follows what has managed to be my presentation which is knitted somewhat roughly together, um, a little bit imperfectly, um, so just to ask for your patience as I proceed. So in um, Negriefa's recent book, A Ghost in the Throat, the narrator, a young woman navigating motherhood, domesticity and her poetic life, is drawn backwards in her own life to her encounter with the Queena Art O'Leary and its 18th century poet Eileen Dovni Cunnell. The writer beautifully translates the poem from Gaelga and documents the poet's tragic, that's the first poet, Eileen Dove, tragic and often graphic story and loss of her husband and father to her children. While she also, this is the Negrifa, entrances the reader with her, the narrator's own story of mothering, of childbearing and of breastfeeding 
weaving these narratives together seamlessly, timelessly, with the incantation, this is a female text repeated through the work. So another UCD academic, Angela Burke, describes Aquina um, and keening in English, she says, suggests a high-pitched, inarticulate moaning. But the Irish word quina, from which it derives, signifies, among other things, a highly articulate tradition of women's oral poetry. The lamenting woman led the community in a public display of grief, acting out her, in her appearance and behaviour the disorder brought about by death. She was often barefoot and dishevelled. Her quina or lament was a series of breathless utterances of rhymed, rhythmic praise of the dead person and invective against his enemies. Later in the 20th century, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and others have identified sequence of emotions which are the necessary components of the grieving process, notably denial, anger, bargaining, sadness and acceptance. It is suggested that they embody a disciplined and powerful expression of these stages of mourning. I was struck by the resonances of the Queen, as de described by Burke, and the rhythmic, physical, psychological, and emotional experience of breastfeeding, as paediatrician and psychoanalyst Donald Wincott described a song without words. Could the experience of breastfeeding and being breastfed mirror our capacity to mourn openly, unselfconsciously, allowing growth and resilience? Winnicott has also coined the term primary maternal preoccupation to describe a state of mind in the mother which develops in the latter stages of pregnancy, all being well, in which there is a total preoccupation with the infant, which consumes the mother, particularly in the weeks after birth, as she, sometimes with a partner or family member, endeavour to establish the feeding, a time of heightened identification with the baby. This is also a time of settling in with the baby, the baby and parents getting to know another and a, self, a sacred time. Does this relate to the quina, our lament at times of loss and mourning? So then I was brought to the concept of a metaphor. And metaphors allow us to convey in ways that are more felt and perhaps more meaningful than the things they symbolize. Metaphors related to food and feeding and digestion permeate our vernacular. She is as sweet as pie, a bittersweet memory. That is hard to digest. We know from our language that we constantly refer to feeding, and I think this is obviously roots in our early feeding experiences. So um, in this presentation, I wanted to link the metaphor of breastfeeding as the earliest relationship and the significance that this has for infant development and how and what we now call infant mental health through the work of Donald Winnicott. I also wanted to explore the metaphors and descriptive and poetic language used around breastfeeding to illustrate the richness of this early feeding time and its relationship to loss and mourning. And I think Emer just referred to it there. We have to be so careful about the words we use and I think that's just really significant because um, even uh, minor utterances can really impact on people at this very sensitive time. Um, I also hope I'll illustrate the richness of our own Irish heritage of poets and writers who describe these experiences. 
And just at the end, I do want to just mention where, um, you know, some, in relation to my own research in the neonatal unit, there, there can be inevitable disruptions to the development of feeding um, following birth and how this may affect mothers and infants, but also how we, uh, ways that we can support parents and infants um, during this time. So I just want to mention uh, a couple of those things. Um, so we're very familiar, really, um, from um, psychological and psychoanalytic theories of uh, the nursing couple and the breastfeed as a metaphor. Um, and we know from Freud and Klein and Winnicott um, that this early relationship is where the baby's development ultimately unfolds. Um, Freud um, really focused on, however, the breast and feeding as aims of the baby's primitive libidinal or love drives and was not really focused on the relationship with the mother as, as a live person. Klein then developed Freud's thinking and she described an infant with a rich internal world of experience which was elaborated through experiences in their world and but also in fantasy. And Bion again describes the mother, the mother's thinking and, and reverie about the infant as um, very significant in terms of helping the infant to um, both um, develop meaning and understanding of their, their early um, experiences. But um, Winnicott, I suppose, is one of the most, um, I suppose, um, famous and um, well, um, one of the people who has really articulated this early uh, experience of infant and mother um, very aptly. Um, he asks, how does a baby become a person? And how does each human being develop uh, to become a unique individual? And he famously said, there is no such thing as an infant. For wherever, wherever one finds an infant, one finds maternal care. And he has also said, it is all one thing, the mother's care of her baby, and the periodic feeding develops as if it were a means of communication between the two, a song without words. So I suppose these are just some little ideas from Winnicott, um, where he describes the feeding situation. He often used diagrams, so this is before we had ready access to photos on the internet, he would often use diagrams and draw in his lectures and they're often included in his texts. And you see the mother represented, I suppose, by the breast um, and the infant. And then this space that um, is, is, occurs between them um, at the time of the breastfeed. So he describes the mother handling this situation uh, very sensitively, that the baby actually, at the beginning, doesn't realise that the breast is separate, uh, but actually it's almost as if the baby has um, the illusion that they have created the breast themselves. Um, and that um, this process, Winnicott felt, is really important in terms of um, the infant um, being able to have um, a sense of omnipotence or control over the environment. And that over time, the mother, uh, through repeated feeding, and, and managing this with the, for the infant will gradually disillusion the infant and allow them uh, to have a separate um, existence um, and, and understand the mother as being a separate entity. Um, 
so so the the mother presents this uh, is a her role is really of object presenting and bringing the world to the baby. So the baby cannot exist alone and needs one person to care for him at first. Um, okay, I just wanted to read actually a little excerpt here um, from an infant observation of a breastfeed. Um, if you could just listen to me for a minute, okay. So this is Shirley who's three weeks old. Um, and she, the, the mother is about to breastfeed the baby. And the father has just given the baby uh, to the mother. The mother is not yet ready for nursing, and Shirley already seems to be suckling through her shirt. Mother offers her breast, and Shirley begins nursing. Suddenly, it is quiet. A few minutes later, Shirley begins to, sit, to cry. Mother moves her to the second breast and explains to the observer that Shirley knows what she wants perfectly well. Mother adds that during pregnancy, they already knew by her movements that she had a strong character. Shirley nurses rhythmically. Mother talks but looks at Shirley. Shirley loses the nipple. She begins rooting on the breast with her whole face. Mother leans over and now Shirley manages to grasp the entire nipple and resumes her rhythmic nursing. She looks very calm now. Nursing slowly, her body relaxed. Mother removes the breast from Shirley's mouth and puts the baby on her chest. Shirley is asleep, her mouth wide open. Occasionally she opens her eyes and immediately closes them. Mother strokes Shirley's face very gently, and while stroking says how amazing it is that Shirley already has character, and there is a difference in her relation to her father and to her mother. Father is the one she plays with, all she wants from mother is my breast. She asks out loud, so what should I be doing with all my creativity? <laughs> and so I suppose we just want to think of the richness, I think, of experience that the baby achieves through breastfeeding. Um, if you think of the sensory feel of the skin, the smell of the mother's uh, skin and um, milk, and there's opportunities to look into each other's eyes, and all of these sensory and sensuous experiences um, are gathered up, as Winnicott says, into uh, memory traces, which form and lay down what we understand as the um, internal, I suppose, representations or working models of relationships, which Bowlby referred to um, in his theory of attachment. And we also see that this space and this experience um, can lead to a sense of creativity of the baby in developing transitional objects. So babies will often not just have a teddy, but they might actually play with a little bit of material, or they might even play with their tongue or their, their thumb. Um, and, and all of these things, Winnicott believes, suggested the capacity to play with the idea of uh, the mother of the breast being available. <coughs> and that was really important for health and, and development. But also there's a richness of experience with the mother in terms of feeding and a special significance in terms of achieving, I suppose, um, breastfeeding. Um, and, and also there's a link um, that we can't um, often quantify, but a link to a mother's own experience of breastfeeding or perhaps bottle feeding. But you know, those early infantile experiences are also important as well. Um, 
So the role of maternal care um, is really about holding the baby. I suppose Winnicott separated out the experience of holding from the concrete experience of a breastfeed. So there's lots of different ways to hold a baby. And breastfeeding is, is one of them, I suppose, the experience received in breastfeeding. And, and really he spoke about the absolute dependence of the baby at that early stage of development um, on this holding experience. And so the maternal care provides the environment where the baby's physiological needs and body ego are held. It's reliable, but not mechanically so, and it implies empathy, so the mother's capacity for primary maternal preoccupation um, is a, a form of empathy uh, with the baby. Um, the baby needs to be protected from physiological insult. The infant's skin is very sensitive to touch, temperature, and um, there's also visual, auditory, and the sense of gravity, the sense of being held, um, is really important to the developing personality as well as to the physical safety of the baby. Um, the maternal care protects the infants from the lack of knowledge of anything but themselves. So the infant isn't aware of anything else uh, but their experience at that time. And routine, uh, regular, cyclical care um, is, is all part of the provision the mother provides. And it's particular to this infant, so it's individualised, it's not rote, it's not a standard package. It has to be this mother with this baby at this time. Um, and it's responsive to the moment when it changes in the infant. And he, he described the physical holding of the baby as a form of loving, and that the mental health of the individual is laid down by all of these aspects of maternal care. Um, but I suppose we also know that um, sometimes around the weaning age, maybe five months or so and onwards, um, there may also be impulses in the baby, which are very normal, to, to bite, to chew harder, to test out this environment. And, um, and that's a really important learning stage, how the baby can express the aggressive, those strong drives that we all need to survive and stand our ground. Um, and that's the first experience that the baby will have of that. And um, he, he, Winnicott describes um, in a lovely paper, breastfeeding as communication, how uh, the infant, even though they can bite and sometimes the teeth are coming in, uh, they very rarely actually bite the breast. It's actually a very rare occurrence. They learn themselves to modulate their force. They might play with the nipple, play with the breast, um, but, but actually it's very rare for a, a, an infant to, to, to bite the breast. But what's really important is for the mother to survive this stage. And, and that means really that even though the infant might be having a wide variety of emotional impulses, that the mother is able to receive them and tolerate them and, and help the infant learn about uh, I suppose that emotional regulation, what we call it now, you know, helps the infant to learn about these strong urges that they have and um, that they are valued and they're important. Um, but, the, um, but the mother um, does not react to them and, or retaliate or, 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 or interpret them in a negative way as, as such. Um, and, and when this can go well, which is what 
Winnicott felt was the richness of the breastfeeding experience, but also could occur in other feeding and bottle feeding as well, was that um, the baby begins to recognise themselves as distinct uh, from the mother, and the mother as a separate person. And this is where Winnicott believed the origin of empathy and concern um, arose. So, um, if all going well, the mother is laying down the foundations of the infant's strength of character and richness of personality. On such a good basis, has a chance to reach the world creatively, reach to the world creatively, and to enjoy and use or play with what the world has to offer, including the cultural heritage. So, just something else on the um, experience of weaning and. and, and, and that, uh, which relates to how I began the talk around the Queena, is that um, loss and mourning are part of life and how the baby navigates and learns about loss uh, lead to capacity for empathy and concern. And we believe, uh, learning from psychoanalysis, these early weeks and months of life, as these moments of heightened togetherness, synchrony, and the good feed are interspersed with moments of ending and of need, and how the baby learns of his aggressive impulse in biting. Babies do not mean to hurt, but have strong feelings and urges at the breast, and how this is responded to with understanding and compassion um, is critical for optimal development. So, um, infant mental health, just to move uh, towards what we're kind of now developing, and Emer spoke a lot about the developments in the new paediatric hospital, which um, are wonderful to see um, you know, things moving in that direction. We've also started an infant mental health initiative across CHI, which is really to try to support uh, our youngest and most vulnerable, arguably, patients in the hospital and their parents who are often admitted uh, often in a crisis. And there's often risk of death of the infant when they're very seriously ill or the infants might need a prolonged admission to hospital. And we know that these infants and their parents are at a much higher rate at risk of mental health um, disturbance and illness over time. And so we're trying to create a, a network of skilled professionals to try and help with uh, these babies and their parents. And I think breastfeeding and uh, the lactation consultant approach are all integral to that, as with all other disciplines. Infant mental health refers to how well a child develops socially and emotionally from birth to age three uh, years, and it is their capacity to express and regulate their emotions, begin to form relationships, and explore their environment and learn. Winnicott's idea of the holding environment and supporting early feeding relationship is key, particularly for vulnerable, sick or disadvantaged infants and families. And this is just another excerpt from a poem uh, by Virani Griefa, um, I think written after the birth of one of her children, which uh, was preterm and required admission to uh, a neonatal unit. This is uh, the last uh, verse of the poem. Um, weeks pass, the nurses tell me that my daughter looks like me. I doubt them as I peer at my reflection in the toilet mirror, but in her incubator, she too is dark-haired, pale, trembling. She lies very still among wires and tubes. When she opens her eyes, I remember the mirror at the heart of Francis Bacon's studio. 
in that wilderness of brushes, tins, paints, easels, and slashed canvases, a single circular mirror slants against a far wall, a glass eye, a calm reflection of commotion. Her eye, when it, is open, when it opens, is dark as a mirror at night, drinking from the muddle and movement of the ward. Her eye, when it opens, seeks me out like a mouth. And it's a lovely poem, actually, in its entirety. So I suppose, how do we, um, how do we support breastfeeding and this early relationship uh, in all its forms in the paediatric setting with vulnerable, fragile, sick infants um, and other aspects of adversity? Um, parents often know what their babies are communicating. And I suppose it's about respecting parents' innate knowledge and understanding. They know the baby from the womb. Uh, they have their personal histories that we often aren't aware of. Um, so I think we probably need to respect that. But they also may struggle, uh, particularly in these contexts, um, which can often take away a parent's sense of uh, competence and, and, and actually inhibit the natural um, parenting repertoire that uh, occurs in, around the birth time. Um, so Wincott believed that um, in order to, we can't help your parents to breastfeed, we can't, but as Emer was saying, but we can support their belief in themselves. Um, and so strengths-based approaches um, are being now researched in terms of attitudes, in terms of supporting parents to actually wonder about this little baby and wonder about the, I think, the feeding relationship with this little baby. And just two um, approaches that have gathered um, a significant amount of evidence are um, the neonatal behavioural observation uh, tool. So that has been used with newborns. It can be used up to three months of age. And it really allows um, the parents to see their baby's communications in a variety of, 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 of ways. Um, and it's also been shown to improve um, breastfeeding continuation in the context of um, first-time mothers. And then video feedback is another method which I had used in my own research with preterm babies. Now, I didn't have any data on feeding, unfortunately. If I could go back in time, I'd probably include it. But um, we certainly found that uh, for babies who had a video feedback session of their parents, the parents reported um, fewer communication difficulties in the very preterm babies. And we felt it was something about parents, again, feeling confidence to recognize the communications of their babies. Um, so I just wanted to finish with the poem. I'm sorry, it's a little bit of a hesitant talk but <laughs> on my part. But um, it's a poem by uh, Ivan Boland, um, and, and it describes a beautiful uh, feed. Now, I think she does refer to the bottle in the poem, but you know, I think I think she summarizes, or she's able to describe that moment of feeding um, in the in the middle of the night uh, that one cannot, I suppose, stop <laughs> uh, or, or, or um, change, or wouldn't want to change. Um, Okay, I might even read it out for you, uh, but uh, I'm sure you can uh, look it up. But that's um, my talk. Thank you. The third speaker is Ariana Humans Keenan. 
spent the last three years traveling the country to not only interview families, but to also photograph families for a book that will hopefully be finally uh, releasing next year. It's called Bonnie Kie, Stories of Breastfeeding Ireland. And I named it intentionally Breastfeeding Ireland because of the importance of not just breastfeeding in Ireland, but breastfeeding our culture, breastfeeding for the health purposes, and breastfeeding the country as a whole. Because what we do, one feed at a time, matters. What others do when they're feeding matters. And I wanted that to be captured within the title. So whether people understand that from a very conscious perspective, or they get it from a subconscious perspective, I wanted it to be there, and I wanted the importance to be noted here today so that you could enjoy it as well. Um, my name is Ariana, and I'm originally from Ireland, in case you... I mean, sorry, originally from America. <laughs> I'm more Irish than America at this stage, so I tell you, I'm never going back, but I'm originally from America, but I've lived the past 10 years in Ireland, and I, it's where I first became a mother, which is very significant and it's very important because it's um, influential. And where you have your baby, from the maternity care you receive to the thoughts around breastfeeding, they all matter. And um, I thankfully come from a breastfeeding family, so I did have those positive influences in my life. Um, I did find a group and a community here, Claire included, um, who supported me through my first breastfeeding relationship and onwards. Claire even, before she, before she knew me, a friend of a friend connected us, and she brought breast shells to me at my home because I had oversupply as well, and I was leaking all over the place and trying to hold a little infant cup and feed my baby and catch the, you know, the letdown. And I was like those spring fountains in Italy. I just had an abundance. And so thankfully Claire stepped in, and that's how we were first introduced, was through breastfeeding. Um, and anyway, uh, breastfeeding has been highly influential in my life, highly influential. And I'll go on to talk a little bit about my story, and then I'll speak about some of the stories that are going to be featured in the books. But um, it was so influential that I knew when I became a mother, I did not want to leave that mothering role. Instead, I, I didn't want to have my breastfeeding interrupted. And I had gone back and forth for many months with my then employer, trying to negotiate breastfeeding facilities, breastfeeding breaks, um, flexible working arrangements so that my breastfeeding with my son would not be interrupted. But eventually, I think you either get tired of fighting and succeed and do your own thing, uh, leave, or create something better. And I decided to create something better. So what I did was I left that job. I enjoyed mothering for a full year without interruption. And then I created Ireland's primary breastfeeding and photography services, Well-Fed Photography. I wanted to provide a business that not only supported breastfeeding from an employer's perspective, I wanted to provide a business that would support breastfeeding families through having those moments captured, through understanding that it's important for them to be seen, and it's important for others to see them. So if you were to ever be a guest in my home, you will see a beautiful portrait of me breastfeeding my son in our living room. And it not only serves to show people that breastfeeding is important in our family, it shows that if you are a breastfeeding parent, you are welcome to breastfeed at my home. So it's very important to us um, that people know that. And thankfully, I have an Irish husband who's been incredibly supportive as well. He had the benefit of having his mother and his father in his home. His father is an architect and worked from home. So he had a model of seeing a man in the home helping with the parenting 
and with the mothering. And he then was an amazing, and has been an amazing supportive partner to me as I breastfed and mothered our own two children. Um, as you know, I spoke about the book by Nikia, Stories of Breastfeeding Ireland. So I have photographed and interviewed, um, so all of the stories that you find within the book, in the book series, they're actually four books worth that are complete now. Um, then all of those came from interviews that we've done. That we've done, And um, the stories were told in first person as if the storytellers wrote them themselves, but it was through an interview process and then putting those words into first person for them. So just to speak a little bit about my own breastfeeding influences, and I'm touching on this because of the importance of your culture and your family in your breastfeeding um, and, and other people's breastfeeding. I would say my two largest influences were my grandmother, which you see in her wedding dress there, um, and my aunt's grandfather, but uh, my grandmother and her daughter, uh, my Aunt Mary. So my grandmother fed, breastfed six children. She actually eloped with my grandfather when she was 15. She woke up with Justice of the Peace in the middle of the night, lied about her age, uh, got married, and then her father was the mayor of my hometown. And he didn't find out about it until she was 16. At that stage, only my, uh, only my grandfather's mother knew, just in case she did become pregnant. But at that stage, when her father found out, again, mayor of the hometown, uh, he made her have a proper wedding. So you see this photo from her proper wedding. Um, and she then got pregnant on her honeymoon. So she did go on to become a mother at 16, and she had six children in total. She breastfed all of them, natural term weaning. Um, and she also would have breastfed her, her nephew. So if her sister had to go out and lived across the road, she would have kept her nephew, and she would have offered feed to him, feeds to him as needed. Um, and also, whenever any of my aunts had breastfeeding challenges, she would have taken them to providers that could help them with establishing their supply or navigating whatever feeding issues that they had. So knowing that, um, even though I didn't know how influential it was at the time, as an adult and as a breastfeeding parent, I can understand how much that did influence me. I also grew up with this photograph of my Aunt Mary uh, breastfeeding her daughter, Sarah. This photograph was taken in 1986, and although I was among the youngest of my cousins, I never really saw any of my cousins breastfed, but I saw this picture. And there are lots of amazing pictures of my Aunt Mary in this book, Hard Twist, by photographer Barbara Van Cleve. This photograph is the one that I always gravitated towards, even as a young child. I didn't really understand why, but now as I look at it, I think it was the connection. There's everything going on, you know, you've got a little bit of an idea of who she is as a person, where she lives, she's sitting in the shade of a car as she's feeding Sarah, and it's a break from cattle branding, which is a very big part of uh, the New Mexican culture, which is where she lives. So I grew up with this photograph. Uh, we had this book sitting on my parents' coffee table, and I would always flip to that photograph. And what it did was it planted a seed for me for when I became a parent, and I just didn't know it at the time. So it's important for it to be seen, and just this one photograph shows how important, and that went on to influence me. And interestingly, I met a woman at a wedding recently. I saw she was breastfeeding, so of course we connected and had a conversation. And I asked her what influenced her to breastfeed, and she said, well, actually, there's a photograph of my mother and my aunt breastfeeding me and my cousin, and I saw that as a child, and I was like, hmm. We have similar stories, let me tell you mine. But anyway, uh, that's just a little bit about my own history and how I came to be a breastfeeding mother and how breastfeeding was very easy for me. It was a very easy decision. I didn't even consider an alternative because it was just what I had seen and grown up with. 
Um, and these are photographs of the one on the left is me with my son, and we had a very different birth experience than what I had anticipated. And I found that breastfeeding was healing to me. So whereas with the birth experience I felt my body had failed him and me, breastfeeding helped me understand that my body was not a failure and that I had not failed him and that I was able to nourish him and provide for him. And then you see the photo in the bottom right is my daughter who I'm currently feeding. She is three years old now. And this was actually after doing one of the photo sessions for the book. I had to come home, um, and the person who I was photographing was a florist, so you can actually see uh, the, the flowers in the background that she had gifted me on my way home, and having that lovely reconnection feed with my daughter when I got home. So as I said, I uh, created well-fed photography, and it was something that I wanted to do to support breastfeeding families. And in fact, when I was photographing before the book, there was one individual who said, yes, when I had my first child, I wanted breastfeeding photographs, and I was at a studio, and I asked the photographer if I could have photographs, but she sat me up on the stool, and I was trying to navigate being on the stool and feeding, and it was very awkward and uncomfortable. And so I wanted to create a safe space where people who are breastfeeding could just naturally have those photographs. They didn't have to ask, they didn't have to feel awkward, or as if it would be weird they have a safe space. So that's what welfare photography is all about. And of course, doing the advocacy work that I'll be talking about. So these are two of the breastfeeding photographs that families have from doing sessions with us. And this is the behind the scenes. So I asked another photographer friend of mine to travel with us to Connemara and photograph behind the scenes of me photographing for the book. And um, one of the things that I loved about this photo session was that it really reminded me of my Aunt Mary because what Flora said to me when I was interviewing her was that she loved breastfeeding because it meant she could help her mother with the sheep and she could feed at will. So it didn't matter where she was, she could just feed her baby. And there's her on top of that lovely mountain. And so why share stories? Well, stories allow for emotional connection, the imparting of wisdom, and a greater capacity for understanding. And it wasn't even until I photographed Flora that I learned that lanolin comes from sheep. I had no idea. And so there, some sheep had recently been sheared, and she showed me, you can see with her fingers there, the yellow substance, that is the lanolin. Um, why else should we share stories? It's, beha it's because it's how we begin to understand people, circumstances, communities, and cultural norms otherwise unknown or unfamiliar to us. This individual is Bridget. She is a, tra a, a woman from the traveling community. And she explained to me in my interview with her that, um, <laughs> that she would use bottles whenever she had company over to her home, or she would use bottles when she was in public. She said they very much had this um, idea that modesty was important and that it was, it was not okay to breastfeed in front of visitors. And as you can understand, if, you, if breastfeeding is not being seen within a community, the assumption is that it's not being done. And with breast, breastfeeding, um, people that are breastfeeding within the traveling community, it's not that it isn't happening, it's just that it's not being seen. So it is happening at lower rates than perhaps other communities, um, not just because of that, but also because of the opportunity for galactosemia to be present, which can be quite um, dangerous if a baby receives breast milk when they have galactosemia. But it was wonderful to sit down and to interview her. She's had five children and she's breastfed them all, including babies that have been premature. And 
it just gave me such a greater understanding of the community that otherwise I didn't really have a lot of understanding of. And I'm thankful that she was willing to share her story, thanks to Poppy Point for putting me in, in touch with her, um, because it will show other women, whether they are women from the traveling community or not, that breastfeeding is still important within this community, that it's still cared about and it's still done, even if statistics would have us believe otherwise. Um, and stories also allow us to understand, for example, how traumatic, a traumatic birth experience can impact breastfeeding. So in Neve, she uh, had a traumatic birth experience that she had not anticipated. She was left in a state of shock. And it lended itself to this cycle, vicious cycle as she called it, of having top-ups because her body was still in shock. It was delayed in producing the milk to supply her son, but also with having uh, formula introduced that influenced her supply as well. So you see her with the scale where she was measuring Dara um, over and over again, and you see in her phone where she was tracking his weights. And I don't know about anyone else, but that makes me feel pretty emotional to consider because for me, as I said, I had the oversupply. So I had the milk pouring out of me. I didn't have to worry about a scale. I didn't have to worry about a public health nurse checking in on me or the weight of my baby. I didn't have the trauma or the stress that was associated with the baby's weight. And I think sometimes for, for individuals like myself who just have that experience, we forget that other people are having other experiences and that it is important and that it is influential in not just feeding itself, but in their feelings of being a mother and their security in, in being a mother and providing for their child. Or how about to understand the comfort that Elaine here felt when her mother couldn't help her with breastfeeding, but her mother-in-law from Argentina could. So Elaine experienced breastfeeding challenges, but her mother, who's from Ireland, did not have breastfeeding experience. She was not able to help her navigate the challenges that she faced. However, at five weeks uh, after her, her birth experience with her lovely daughter, her mother-in-law came to visit and she was speaking to her mother-in-law about the challenges that she faced, and her mother-in-law said, hmm, that sounds very much like what I was feeding Matthias. He had an anterior tongue tie, which made it more challenging to diagnose, and she said, I was in so much pain when he latched that I would actually bite and cling to and pull on the sheets. And she went on to feed Matthias until he was two years old. And what that gave Elaine was the comfort to know that she could go on to feed as much as two years if she got the right help and support. So she used nipple shields, and then at a holiday celebration, she realized she had forgotten one of the nipple shields, and she panicked, thinking, oh no, baby's not going to be able to latch. But actually, she was. And finally, she realized she could leave the nipple shields behind and just feed baby to breast without the nipple shields, and was able to go through that journey. And um, what I love about this is that you get to see how different cultural experiences really influence one another and can help one another and complement one another. And Matthias said, I interviewed Matthias as well, so there are partners' perspectives with some of the stories. And what he said was he couldn't understand why at almost every appointment she was asked, are you going to breastfeed or bottle feed? Because he said in Argentina, it's assumed that you will breastfeed. So he was really confused. He said, why is, why is this question always being asked? Um, and for him, it was just such a different experience. Breastfeeding was the norm where he grew up, and bottle feeding was not. So it was great to hear um, his own uh, experiences, as well as how he felt whenever he went through the birth and labor process. He felt as if he was considered um, a lesser partner, and not as equal a partner, and not able to contribute as much. And so I have a 
very much a passion around that changing as well. And that's why I want to include stories like theirs within the book. Or how about this story of Tara, who went from being totally against her breast being used for a feeding method at all. When, the first, when, when she was first pregnant with her son, um, and the doctors were asking her about how she planned to feed, she was like, oh, no, 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 no. My breasts are not for food. Um, but then she had her daughter, and she realized at the hospital her daughter seemed to be getting a little sick, but the staff said, oh, it's okay, you know, babies do spit up, it's fine. She got home, and she realized something was very, very wrong. So her son and her then-husband went out for a walk, and she's so distressed, she's trying to get a bottle into her daughter, the daughter's rejecting it, she's getting so sick, and one thing that helped Tara was that when she was in the hospital, she heard one of the nurses say to a fellow person in the ward, it's okay if baby doesn't latch straight away. Baby can latch later. So she had that seed planted in her mind, and she remembered that and returned to that, and she let her instincts take over, and she put baby to her breast. So whenever her husband and her son left, she was not a breastfeeding mother. When they returned, she was. And she's gone on to, as you see, tandem feed as well, two more children. And one thing that was very interesting was that when Tara started to breastfeed, I don't want to give you all of the book goodies away, <laughs> but when Tara started to breastfeed, it sent her back to a childhood memory that was very traumatic around breastfeeding. So she discovered that the reason she was resistant to breastfeeding was because of trauma she experienced from a family member. And it was not actually due to being against breastfeeding. So she was able to uncover this memory and work through that trauma and go on to, as you can see, feed three children. Or how about when Caroline here had her daughter and the position that her daughter was in in the womb and also the subsequent Von Tuss delivery led to quite the adventure and exclusive pumping. And when I say an adventure, it was. If you ever wanted a light story about exclusive pumping where there's lots of hilarity and laughing, you need to read Caroline's because she went through moving across uh, from England over to Ireland, finding homes, traveling on airplanes and trains and trying to manage pumping. And what does she do with the milk? And how does she manage that? Um, and having a freezer stashed full when she's leaving the country, what does she do with it? So it's full of lots of uh, fun details, but... When, when her daughter was born, her daughter's nose was completely flat to her face. And with the Vontuse delivery, she was extremely sore at the back of the head. So with the way that her nose was positioned, she wasn't able to maintain a latch, and she wasn't able to breathe properly as she was feeding either. And with the, the soreness at the back of her head, that was an added complication to trying to get her to feed at the breast. So Caroline went ahead and um, exclusively pumped, and uh, it's a very, very interesting story. So when the book comes out, I recommend getting it. Even if you just want to understand that and have a few laughs, it's worth it. Or how about why Linda breastfed her daughter for three years and decided she would do things differently the next time around? So she said, Linda said she was addicted to breastfeeding. She said she loved the feeling, she loved the oxytocin, and that she loved the bond and the relationship. But she discovered when she went back to work that she realized her identity as a career woman was important to her too. And so she said if she ever did it again, she would feed for fewer years and return to work sooner. She has since gone on to have twins. She breastfed them for um, eight months, and she just, I chatted with her recently, and she just finished feeding them. But I think as well to breastfeed uh, twins for eight months is incredible. And we also will be featuring in the book 
a woman who breastfed her twins to eight years. So if you'd like to read that story, that'll be the first book as well. Or how about when um, Charlotte was surprised at the birth of her son, Dahi, when she discovered that he had Down syndrome. She said she, she'd had two very, um, she'd had two births before this, and they were very eventful and not the calm and relaxing birth that she wanted to have. Then with Dahi, she had this amazing gentle birth birthed him, immediately pulled him up to her face and saw that he had Down syndrome, which had not been caught in any of the scans. So it was a huge shock to her. She said she immediately dissociated from the fact that he was even her baby. She could not connect with him. She could not comprehend that that had been the baby that was inside her. And she says now she feels quite awful to have had those things go through her mind, but those were her honest feelings. And her husband did not see it immediately. So he did not, he had those initial moments without the fear or the worry or the questioning or the wondering what will happen. But with Dahi, um, there were a few markers that they needed to check for. So took Dahi to the neonatal unit and thought he was just going to be checked over, given back, and that's not what happened. And she said before that he'd had some feeding difficulties, which if you don't know, um, the palate can be different, so that can change the breastfeeding um, but he had a few feeding difficulties, and she said, honestly, she was in such a low place that she didn't even care. That's how much of a shock it was for her and how much she was grieving. She said she felt as if one feels when a person dies. But when Dahi went to go be checked, um, he, he ended up staying, and she walked back in. He was in an incubator, and he had all these wires, and the doctor was saying, we're going to need to give him a bottle. And she said it was in that moment that her mothering instincts clicked, and that she said, no, you're not, I'm feeding him. And she said breastfeeding gave her the opportunity, gave her that moment to feel as if she was Dottie's mother. So without breastfeeding connected them, she may have stayed disconnected longer, but it didn't. It connected them, and the story of her and Helen Burt um, helping her with getting feeding established and going down and it working, and their celebration is incredibly beautiful to read. Um, or how about to feel the triumph of this mother Darcy who reestablished her supply after a three-week hospital stay in which she became too weak to express breast milk to maintain her supply. So she has an autoimmune issue. And when she gave birth, she was okay at first, but then got very, very, very ill. Um, had to go into hospital because of how ill and weak she was. Her baby could not stay with her. She tried the very first week to pump, but... It was just too much for her to try to express, to clean the, you know, the bottles and the material, the, the equipment. And so she had to cease pumping in order to try to get herself to a place of being well enough to return home. And her mother, actually, she's from America. Her mother had flown over from America to help her. And her mother breastfed. And so it was her, her mother's first time of learning about bottles. She actually did not know what to do. She had to find out, what do I do to feed this baby with a bottle? But Darcy was, she, she was determined to increase her supply again or reestablish her supply. And she was a swimmer, an athlete. And so for her, having something to work towards, a goal to achieve, made sense to her. And when she got the help of a lactation consultant, the consultant suggested that she track her progress so that when she saw an increase, she could actually connect with that. 
And so she did, and this is a photograph of a notebook where she kept um, different notes. And I love and get very emotional when I see the words, ate only from me. Could you imagine? Could you imagine how, much, how good that feels to go through all of that and have your baby be able to eat solely from you? So this is why it's important to share stories. And I know I supplemented some of that information with extra, uh, extra details, but you learned so much about these people and their stories from a few sentences and one or two photographs. Imagine a world full of books and stories and uh, paintings and photographs of breastfeeding. How much more might we understand? How much more can we learn, not just about breastfeeding, but about other communities, about people that we assume are different to us? I, I would say we learned a great deal. And I would say that our understanding and our empathy and our ability to connect would be hugely different than it is today. So for everyone who's breastfeeding and, and breastfeeding in public, I, I thank you, or who has breastfed in public, I thank you because it's important and it matters, not just to the baby that you're feeding or to yourself, but to other people. So um, if you'd like to learn more about the book and be up to date about its release or any of the other advocacy work that we are doing, at Wellfed Photography, um, you can learn more by going to wellfedphotography.com and clicking the breastfeeding tab. And don't forget to share with um, family members, friends, loved ones, or maybe someone that doesn't know much about breastfeeding as well, because it's not just people who have the knowledge that need to know this information, it's other people as well. And in fact, I'll add one more story. There's so many that I could share, but. Um, another person I interviewed talked about how her grandfather had had a really um, challenging experience with the grandmother when she tried to feed and it didn't work out well. So he was very against breastfeeding. So when his daughter went on to breastfeed, um, he wasn't that supportive. And then when her daughter went on to breastfeed, he came back around. And now he's very supportive of breastfeeding. He's very understanding of it. She can sit in the room with him and feed around him and it's a non-issue. So if you feel like there's someone in your life who doesn't get it, doesn't understand, is too old to learn, please know that that is not necessarily true. Um, again, my name is Ariane Yomas Keenahan, Director of Well-Fed Photography and creator of Bonnie Kihei's Stories of Breastfeeding Ireland. There are my details, and I've given Claire some cards as well, just so it's easy for you to have my details if you'd ever like to get in touch. So thank you very much. The final speaker was Neve Cassidy. We mentioned I'm here to talk about Bridger, which is a national breastfeeding support charity, parent support charity, not just breastfeeding. Um, and Ariana's, you know, presentation just before this is really helpful for me because I decided to talk about Bridger through my own story. So when I became pregnant in 2012, I was in a period in my life where I was experiencing a bit of isolation and I you know, everything is a bit more up in the air, it's your first baby, you're feeling a little bit vulnerable. And my partner looked on the internet for something to help me. So he went looking to find a class that was going to help me. And he found a class called Relaxed Stretch Breed for Pregnancy, which is a Pritchard Anthony Ireland class. And it's basically some kind of movement, yoga-based exercises, but with some antenatal education 
And the important part for him when he found it on the website was that it talked about building community and support. And he said, he found this on the internet. And he said, Neil, I think you should go to this class. <laughs> so we did. Um, so I attended Relax, Rest, Breed from when I was 14 weeks pregnant until I gave birth. And that provided me with a lot of just an introduction to the world of Purdue and what it does, but also an introduction to you know, what's actually involved with being a parent and with birth and, and all of those things. I also then did a weekend animated class with Purdue, which was you know, an independent class, small group, all getting together in a room, not much, a little bit smaller than this, um, and that was my animated education for that. So when I was 38 weeks pregnant in this photograph, I went on my maternity leave and anxiously waited for the baby to arrive. Baby decided they wanted to stay in for a little bit longer um, and I had an induction at 40 weeks plus 11 days. I thought it was great getting one day over the hospital policy. Um, I thought I'd worked really hard to get that extra day before being induced. Um, but as I've since learned, as many of the stories go, my birth experience wasn't quite as it was planned. And this photograph here on the left is the first photograph of my baby boy Keen, who was born by emergency cesarean section. And there he is in the scrubs of his daddy, having some lovely skin-to-skin -skin time. The second photograph is the day I brought him home from hospital, where the night previously I had left him as I was discharged and he was not. So that blue little machine up there on the shelf you might recognise as a breast pump and as he had ended up in NICU I had been pumping for him. I hadn't intended on telling this part of the story um, but Emer and um, something she mentioned in her presentation, I came in at 9 o'clock that morning with my breast milk to deliver to my baby in time for his feed where he had been given one form of the bottle before I arrived and went on for five years of cow's milk protein and she following that. So after Keen was born, I, I went home, I had a really, really difficult breastfeeding journey that I managed to somehow kind of navigate myself at home for a few weeks until I was able to attend my Pridgey um, breastfeeding support group. This is our current group um, that I now facilitate in Baldoyle Life or in Baldoyle Family Resource Centre, but, but it was the group that I attended with my baby. And part of why I was at a creature breastfeeding support group was because I knew they existed from the experience I'd had in my um, antenatal care, but also, you know, I, I needed something. As I said, I was feeling quite isolated already as it was, and I needed to be around other people and to be told that it was going to be okay. So for me, while breastfeeding support was part of what I received from Purdue, a lot of it was just the support of other parents who were either going through the trenches with me at the same time or who were a few steps ahead and were able to tell me that it was normal, that it was going to be okay, or actually that sounds a little bit difficult, here's some help and support to help you get through that. I went every single Monday morning until I went back to work when he was nine months old. And the tea and the biscuits were most certainly a huge part of that. Um, if I was feeling really, really anxious on a Friday, struggling through my parenting journey, um, being able to say, okay, I'll just get to group on Monday, I'll just get to group on Monday. And uh, you know, that just that goal post was something that helped me get through. But Bridget didn't just give me breastfeeding support group. 
it also gave me what we call in some of the branches baby link and some of the branches parent link or mother link which is where a group of parents come together usually with similar, similar age babies and they set up their own little group in my case was we went to each other's houses every Wednesday and we had this little group of babies and friends and there were six or seven of us that attended and um, so this is in my house and that little tub on the left in the middle is mine um, so he, he, he loved his milk and he, he, he grew very well that's just like Every Wednesday we went to our babyfeeding group and I attended breastfeeding group as well. And those women became my friends, they became my village. Um, we started with breast with babyling, met a breastfeeding group, went to babyling group, graduated to the play cafes. Eventually, by the time the babies were about eight or nine months old, we got a lunch with wine without babies. Over time, we got the weekends away. Um, and most recently, we travelled to Lisbon without any children at the wonderful time. That was nine years ago. So those people have been in my life for the past nine years, and here they are at my wedding. There's two missing, here's four at my wedding. Interestingly enough, Joanna King was my wedding photograph, <laughs> and uh, I'm going to have her photographs taken by them. So I got my community from attending Quidju and after my first experience with my first baby I then trained as a breastfeeding counsellor and one of my wonderful tutors Sue is here today and that people train as breastfeeding counsellors because of the support that they get at breastfeeding group. Attending breastfeeding group gave me more than I could ever pay back in gratitude over the last six or seven years where I've been given back because it, it helped me with that matriescence stage. It helped me with that transition to parenthood, to becoming a mother, and giving me the support that I needed during that time. And they gave me these wonderful women, and all the wonderful women from the breastfeeding program and the antenatal program that I've also um, taken. What else was I going to say? Sorry. <laughs> um, the Critchu Breastfeeding Counselors. Critchu's been around, I'm reliably formed since Mr. Thomas Smith. What does it say? 1984, officially, but unofficially since about 1976. Um, we have been receiving funding from the HSC to, to train our breastfeeding volunteers since 2009. And we currently have 32 in-person groups running in 15 counties across the country. Um, we, and we, we've continued with six online groups as well. So we probably had a few more in-person groups than that prior to the pandemic, um, but we are trying to get everything back up in the morning. Um, I believe my group in Baldwell was the, one of the first breastfeeding groups to come back in person um, the week before Christmas in whatever we were allowed back, 2020. <laughs> 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 I, like, I just needed to get back. I, I needed the tea and biscuits. <laughs> so the breastfeeding counselling training is a comprehensive training. It takes about 18 months. Um, where our volunteers are given breastfeeding information and learn about the biology of breastfeeding and how it works. But more importantly, we're given the counselling skills that allow us to support women and families and people who are breastfeeding. And it's in those counselling skills that 
brings women back to us and families back to us week after week and week after week for the team biscuits. Because it's not just about coming with a breastfeeding problem and being giving some information. It's about being supported, about being listened to, and about feeling that you're not being judged. And I suppose if there's anything that I could give across today to people who are coming maybe from a more medical background is that those counselling skills, that ability to listen to parents, to, to talk to them, to, to hear what it is that they're saying in their journeys, is probably one of the most important things. Because unfortunately when people have negative experiences around their breastfeeding journey in relation to the care that they receive, a lot of it's actually got to do with more with the way they were spoken to or not spoken to, rather than maybe the information or the actual service provision. So being able to be with women, be with them and listen to them and care for them in a holistic way and again, something even touched on, supporting them as that dyad, especially if mother or baby is sick, to see them as two parts of a whole that in their care they have to be supported together and um, it's just really, really important. I digress. We have 181 qualified breastfeeding counsellors currently active around the country. Um, we're 56 trainees at the moment, many of them are going to qualify next month and will be out at groups from January and then we have another 24 trainees starting in January. These are all people just giving up their own time, as I said, primarily because of the support that they have received themselves. If you've never been to a breastfeeding support group, it's, some of them are held in people's homes, some of them are held in community centres like my one, and everybody is welcome. So whether people are exclusively breastfeeding, exclusively pumping, combination feeding, formula feeding, feeding from the breast, feeding with that breast supplementer, finger feeding, or any combination of any of those things have weaned, come along, you know, you don't have to be, it's not a, it's not an exclusive space, it, it's, it's open for everybody. Um, and it is, it's a social, it's very much a social space. In my story of nine years of, of kind of support and then giving back, I still get more from my relationship with Kaju than than I, than I give. I, I get more from the wonderful women who continue to support me, even as a mother of a nine and a six year old, <laughs> um, and the, the relationships that I get. Um, but coming to group is definitely just one of the most important places. So in Quidu, we talk about that it takes a village to, to raise a parent, and I, I, I did this presentation, I set off these slides um, on Friday, and then last night, I got this text message from one of the women who attends my group. I had put it into WhatsApp saying, I'm going to a breastfeeding symposium, we're going to be talking about group. If you have anything you'd like to say, um, let me know. So it's interesting that she, she used this, so I'll just, I'll just read it. As the old adage goes, it takes a village to raise a child. I would also argue that it takes a village to raise a parent and a child. When my son Ford was born with a tongue tie, I struggled with breastfeeding. My determination, my determination to continue despite the challenges was not knocked by the lack of support by health services or isolation in the four walls of the house, thanks to Bridget. They were the village who got me through the challenges by removing the sense of isolation, providing a safe space to bounce ideas off and to offload pressure posed by family and societal expectations of infant feeding. I now feel it takes a very busy village to raise my child, 
But thanks to the support of Pritchard's amazing volunteers, that continues to be available through toddler groups and baby link groups, and I feel they have my back to this day. She has set up one of the baby link groups and is running that first, and she's also going to be um, starting a training in January that I talked about. One of the other things, when I asked, sent this message to ask the women would they give some feedback on Kriju, I said, if you want to send it as a voice note, send it as a voice note, because I know sitting down to actually type out a message is um, a lot more difficult. So I have two segments of two of the voice notes. Now there is some background noise in this. The mother is out walking her baby, she doesn't sleep very well, so there's some traffic and some wind noise just to be aware of. But then Googled me and found out that there was a lactation consultant, so she actually got me to come to the house first. Um, but what she's talking about in this next segment is about the breastfeeding support um, that she received at her group. Um, 
have kind of show what it is that Richard did for support in that breastfeeding relationship for those parents, but also true that um, normalization of what it's like to become a new parent and that matriarchs type stage. <laughs> so Pritchard is a membership organization, but non-members are welcome to attend all of our um, programs and services. But if you would like to find more about membership within Pritchard, you just point your phone at that screen, it'll open up the membership page. Um, or just Google Pritchard and it will come there as well. Um, but we do have, we do provide support antenatally, we provide support for the breastfeeding relationship, we provide support for any relationship, and um, then nine years later they might come to you waiting. <laughs> <laughs>